Hey everybody, before we start, um, I'm, I'm seeing like a lot more uh, interactions, a lot more listens. I want to thank you guys so much. Thank you for all the diehard listeners. Thank you for the new listeners. Um, if you guys could do me a favor, go subscribe on the platform that you listen on and also leave a comment. Um, give us a rating. Give us a review. Uh, every review and every rating helps push us up um, so we can just get more listeners and get more traction and so we can deliver a better product to you guys. Um, so, yeah, thanks so much. Here's the episode. Okay, Chuck Fagan, Blackstar. Blackstar Bank. I'm Chuck Fagan, NMLS 884-138, Blackstar Bank, an equal housing lender. I'm going to be completely compliant. I'm not speaking on behalf of Flagstar. I mean, I'm speaking from my experience today, but to be compliant 100%, I always have to say that when I'm talking to somebody, you know, about mortgages or lending, uh, or certainly if I'm taking an application. So in order to remain compliant, I always like to start these conversations with, uh, with that little compliance line. But yeah, man, I've been in Savannah for nine and a half years. Uh, been lending uh, that, that same amount of time, basically. Uh, took a couple of breaks, but mostly on and off for, uh, for nine and a half years now. And I've been with Flagstar Bank for almost five years. So it'll be five years in August. So maybe you want to tell everybody, like, what do you do at Flagstar? Because I know a lot of guys have seen you on social mm-hmm. media, but, you know, for those that haven't. So I'm a senior mortgage loan officer. You know, I uh, have a team that works for me and my pipeline, my customers, my book of business, uh, a dedicated assistant, a dedicated processor, plus a couple of rotating other support staff that support me uh, and a few other loan officers. So, you know, Flagstar is a nationwide, you know, mortgage lender uh, with a, you know, good market share. Um, we service most of our loans in-house, you know, with the subservicing rights. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're kind of like a lender for life. You know, we try to be there with clients from the stage of buying their first home, you know, to buying a vacation home or an investment home uh, and ultimately kind of their, their retirement home, their forever home. Uh, and so working with clients at all stages of life, one of my favorite things to tell people is that you know, the numbers are what they are and rates have been super low. So the right now they're great. The numbers are great, <laughs> but the right mortgage decision kind of often comes down to, you know, where, where you think your life is headed, you know? So the, the young family PCSing into Savannah to do three years here, you know, they, they may have a different mortgage decision because they're only going to be here two or three years than, you know, somebody who's retiring here and is going to live here for, you know, the next 25 years or whatnot. So I think there's just always getting to know your clients, you know, what their goals are. Sometimes we call it the why behind the why. Um, is always kind of a good place to start, you know, anytime you're talking to somebody about investing into their first property. It's kind of interesting because I feel like as a, you know, a lot of people would think that that would be more of the job of the realtor, but like, you know, you don't think about the back end as much, especially in the retail sale. Um, and it's kind of interesting to hear that you're constantly, you're taking all that into account. Like, are you... Like talking to your like talking to the client, then like constantly mm-hmm. figuring out what their situation mm-hmm. is. Like, I don't, what's the process like? You know, I think I, I think the realtor sells the dream. You know, a lot. You know, especially, you know, uh, uh, buying a home is an emotional you know decision for a lot of people in their first time. You know, especially their first time. And so, um, we tend to be you know the, the more the logical right brain. You know, uh, you know, going from the heart to the head after they've decided. Oh, I love this house. I really want to get this house how do I get there? You know, how do I, how do I actually get this? Uh, and then of course, you know, when you're 
pulling someone's credit and, and talking to them about their finances, you're really getting to know them because, you know, you know anybody can, you know, talk to somebody about a house and say, yeah, I'm, I'm qualified. I can, I know I can buy this. And, and then when they figure out what they actually have to do to get there, it becomes a little bit more of a, of a real conversation. Uh, and so again, I, I always tried to align myself with companies that were in it for the long haul because it's a very big, uh, you know, decision for people. And, we were just talking before we got on about the 2008, 2009 crash. And, you know, there's so many people who, you know, who came out of that really scathed and a negative connotation towards this industry, uh, meaning real estate, investing, mortgage, uh, you know, kind of got a bad rap for many years uh, and in part deservedly so. Right. I mean, not 100 percent, you know, but uh, the industry pushed products that were not healthy in the past, uh, government regulators ignored those warning signs from those products. And then, of course, ultimately consumers sign on to those products as well and, and have to deal with the consequences. So it's, it's always a little bit of everybody. Uh, but I think this market the last year um, is a little worrisome, you know, for different reasons. It's not that I believe an impending real estate crash is coming. I, I certainly don't think that's coming for five or six years. Uh, but I do think that there are things that are happening that, you know, may be making it, it, it worse ultimately um, because of the inventory crisis. I have had so many clients in multiple markets are on their seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth or more property trying to get it under contract. Uh, and their competition is people who are moving across the country with significantly more down payment funds or complete cash. Uh, and it just is becoming increasingly frustrated uh, for people who are trying to enter the market. Uh, and so that's why I really do love working with investors, because a lot of you guys are, are working on projects that will help satisfy some of these inventory crises. And, you know, eventually you'll be selling to somebody who needs, you know, a first time homebuyer's mortgage or, you know, even if I can't help you finance the deal you're doing, uh, somebody's going to want to buy that home from you. Uh, eventually. So I, I really enjoy working with all types of stages of clients. Some you kind of like, okay, there's a lot there, but some mm -hmm. that you kind of skipped over that uh, you said that you don't think anything but like a crash is not coming for five or six years. What makes you think that? Like what's your, I know that's a hot topic right now. So I think it's a great topic. There's um, uh, several factors, long-term factors about birth rates post 1973, you know, Roe v. Wade, um, a lot of it is about the excess demand left in the latter part of Generation X, the entirety of the millennial generation, and the beginning of this new Generation Z. Uh, and what I mean by that is because of the last crash in 2008, 2009, you have an entire cohort of people who have not yet, uh, you know, gotten into the property game. Um, that their previous generations, by the time they had hit age 30 or age 32 or age 34, had already done, right? And so. There is a, an enormous amount of demand um, that has pent up over the last 10 years or so. Uh, you know, also, I, I, you know, we'll talk more and more about interest rates here, but I, I don't see them shooting up dramatically in the next three to five years. I do think see them going up gradually, uh, but that really will depend on uh, both the economic uh, recovery for coming out of the pandemic, but also other countries' economic recoveries. Because, you know, again, the interest rates are... A global game these days in terms of the bond markets this is massive massive amounts of money moving between countries all the time so uh, I, I i think with those two main factors 
Um, I think I see a really stable to you know, highly increasing market. And the, the flip side, of course, is supply, right? So I've been reading up on this, and you can go back to 2010, 2011. You know, um, coming out of that real estate crash, uh, there's a lot of really good books and movies about that. And uh, one of my favorite is Too Big to Fail. Uh, it was an Aaron Sorkin um, script on HBO. And uh, Hank Paulson and Ben Bernanke, uh, they're talking about a conversation with Alan Greenspan, the former chairman of the Federal Reserve. And uh, Greenspan says to Paulson, he says, there's, there's a huge oversupply problem. The government should buy all of the supply and burn it. Right. And so like people who are high up in <laughs> economics and and our government, I mean, this is how they think. Right. I mean, this is crazy. So what ended up happening was in 2009, 10 and especially 2010 and 11. Um, this is when real estate investment trusts got really big into the game. BlackRock, Blackstone, these types of names you've heard before in the news. And the government came in under the Obama administration and, and helped them secure you know, thousands upon thousands of single family rental properties. Uh, and they were sold, you know, at 30, 40 cents on the dollar at the time with certain deed restrictions, right? One of those deed restrictions was that these real estate investment trusts could not sell these properties unless it was to the person renting from them for 10 years. So these, these deals all got made between 2010 and 2011. Well, here we are in 2021 with a lot of these 10-year sunset deals coming to unlock some of those deed restrictions. Uh, I think I read that it's somewhere in the ballpark of, you know, 15 to 25,000 single-family homes that could be coming to the market. Obviously, this is a nationwide thing, but you know, you know that, that that's mean, really not that many. They said the shortage right now is four million. I, it's four million. You know, yeah. it's a drop in the bucket. Yeah. But I mean, anything we can do to get these these rental properties back into the inventory, you know, circulation, I, I think is kind of, you know, necessary. One thing that happened that was a big video I did in the Facebook group was about the increase in pricing for second home and investment mortgages delivered through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So this is the main clearinghouse for, you know, top tier paper that mortgage lenders make. What they did was they added a 3% cost hit. What that means is it, it gets absorbed into the interest rates, you know, but it, it's costing lenders 300, you know, 400 basis points more uh, to deliver an investment transaction mortgage or a second home transaction mortgage than it did six or eight months ago. So what you've seen is those rates for those products have jumped up a quarter, a half a point in some cases uh, to account for that cost to deliver those loans. And that is a you know a high level top down policy uh you know trying to disincentivize some of the investors and second homes you know financing in order to give people who are in the primary occupancy position a, a little bit better of a shot is it smart policy i think it's debatable right but i think it's just important to know what those policies intentions are because we see an inventory crisis like never before. Now, one of the reasons we have an inventory crisis, this is kind of something that's not really talked about a lot, is what? you know we've had no foreclosures. But even still, those foreclosures, like if you, if every single person that's behind were to be foreclosed on, it would be massive hysteria. You think so? I mean, I, I mean, it I, still I, wouldn't meet the demand, though, right? I mean, demand's a little bit over four million, and the amount of people that are facing foreclosure are a little under four million. 
And they're not even facing foreclosure. That's just people that are either have been late or missed a payment during the duration of the past year. Right. But, I mean, if you just go back historically, there's a certain amount of foreclosures that would come to the market every year. Right. right. And so just even the lack of that historical number, there's a correlation between that and price. Right. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying yeah. I would drive down the price a little bit, but how much? Oh, I, and here's how much that would just get absorbed by all these investors with all this cash that are waiting to. And I think what we need is not for the prices to crash. We just need them to stop going up eight to ten percent, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I mean, and and CNBC and the media will tell you that when appreciation goes from eight percent to five percent, that that's a crash. Like that's that's how oh, the yeah. media works, yeah. right? You know, it's still five percent appreciation. It's just coming into more historical lines instead of being. Uh, a little bit more outrageous. Yeah, the number one thing I wish we would see happen is a deal on lumber. I mean, if you talk to the builders uh, or, or, or guys in, in your world that are flipping homes, the cost for basic lumber, we're talking about tripling in two years. I mean, have you, you, know? wa- you watched the futures at all? Uh, yeah, I do have a good investment portfolio and I do watch those and I am a part of a couple of investment groups is it three twenty five to twelve fifty in twelve months? Right, right, and I, I, you know, again, it's it's it's. I thought I think tripling. I think it's been in less than two years or a year and a year and some months. Um, that can't continue without prices continuing to go up. And for my new construction clients that are facing increasingly longer build times, you know, the the imperative to get in, lock in a price uh, is is very important. It used to be. Five, seven, eight, nine years ago, you know, builders were begging people to come in and walk their sites and would throw in a free 40 inch TV and, you know, all sorts of packages to get people to buy these homes. And now it's take it or leave it. This is what's available. Here is the price. Here is the package you want to addition to that price. You know, we'll be we'll be done in nine months or eight months, you know, unless a hurricane comes. Yeah, right. You know, so I mean, I just think it's it's a very competitive market. Uh, for buyers and obviously for home sellers, it's you know please sell your property. It's the best time to sell. Please please bring it to the market. We really could use it for the inventory. Do you know a lot of builders that aren't building because of the cost? Like how much is that of that is contributing to the whole inventory problem we're having? Do you think? You know that's a speculative. I I, I don't have enough information. I mean I, the builders I know would like more help to build more. You know um, they are. It's not really about lumber. It's about labor. I think it's lumber and labor. It's the two L's for sure. Uh, the labor is not purely because of the government intervention and the you know the stimulus bills. That's part of it. But I, it's also about this this lack of passing on skills from the last generation and subs to the new generation. You know, the average, and this is not just in building. This is the average appraiser is fifty nine years old. The average mortgage originator is fifty four years old, right? So, you know, there's a lot of skills that are in the real estate building mortgage world that are not being passed down to a new generation, which is why I'm interested in what you're doing, because you're a younger guy in this, you know, world all of a sudden in just a few years and have made a huge impact already. And I think we need more of that in this industry at all levels, because those skills not being passed down are are preventing the industry from being more successful. So, you know. It's there's not a lot of good, you know, incentivization, you know, incentives to get people into these trades, you yeah. know, and we need people to get connected to that world more and more so that we get more of a labor force to because I was just pointing out in the map here in your in your wonderful office slash recording space here about how many homes are going to be built in this West Chatham area. Yeah. And, you know, that's not only 
inventory for sales, that's jobs. That's, you know, people that can learn a skill. And I mean, this is $25 an hour now type of work because of how in demand it is. Right. So I, I, I'm, I'm interested to see how we can get uh, more people locally connected uh, to those trades because it would just be better for uh, for everybody because the, the less crime we have, the less poverty we have, the better property values are going to do on an overall level, which will help whatever market inside of Chatham County you're working in. What do you think that the answer to that is? Do you have like a, have you thought about that? Have you contemplated yeah. late at night? Like, you know, there's a lot of demand in um, the average to above average price point here. You know, we need, um, we need, we need to deliver, you know, we need the ability to deliver services, especially infrastructure services to these new developments while we also need funding to incentivize uh, development in town, right? You know, what I mean by that is, you know, people who are taking properties that are barely livable or not livable inside of town, um, I, I, I think that's actually more important to the inventory, affordable housing crisis, any of those types of things we're thinking about. I think that's more important than the new standard development at 250 or $285,000 purchase price, you know, point, which is, you know, not built for affordable housing or, or rental because either you guys are looking to fix and flip and hold, or you're looking to sell it to somebody who's either going to live in it or, or hold it. Right. And we need more inventory, both for owners to live in, but also for rental housing that is affordable enough so that people who work here can afford to live here. You know, and so I, I, I am very interested and involved in local policy at the city and state and county level uh, to try and incentivize more development in a price point that will yield more people to own and rent that's affordable. You know, and again, I'm, I am not here to, you know, take apart, you know, the business models. And I certainly having worked in this business for almost a decade, have a feel for What's too much? You know, the example I gave to you before we started recording was in Atlanta. You know, you develop a single family home, you're going to pay in excess of $10,000 towards, you know, infrastructure costs, you know, that that development or that house will enjoy, you know, and I think we've got to come up with something that's a number that's more relative to Savannah. 10 grand is probably way too much. A grand is probably appropriate. Right. The problem is I do know, like, if you start charging those, I think that that's going to push people out of the price point that you're talking about, right? Like, you, Right, so you're you talking about reducing demand. You got, you're talking about yeah. reducing demand in the two hundred fifty to $300,000 range, maybe, right? You know, because, of course, the builders are going to have to pass this on to their customers. Yeah. They're going to raise their prices. Uh, and so if that decreases demand in that price point by 3 or 5%, but, in, but we can turn around and use that to increase supply in the one hundred twenty-five to $175,000 range, by 10%, you know, I think that's a fair trade, you know. Does Atlanta just do a flat fee or is it scaled? It's definitely yeah. scaled, Okay, you know, multifamily has more. Um, it is, and, and here's the thing too, a lot of people think it's the policy that's out just for builders and develop, it's not just residential. Hotels would pay the biggest amount of impact fees because of course they use a lot of public resources, right? You know, I mean, how many calls to a hotel for service do they get, you know, you know fire, you know, EMS, all that stuff. You know, we have to pay for that. And so it's not just about single family residential development. I have a soft spot for trying to ins- use this policy to incentivize 
you know, growth in the, in the price point that we talked about. That price point has got to get more supply and whatever we can do um, from a, a policy standpoint locally would be great to do that because I, I, I know that there are some of my colleagues that are on the housing task force. I've communicated, uh, you know, my thoughts, you know, to them. And I, I know that there is real, you know, consideration to some of these ideas, uh, but it's going to take buy-in from the industry as well. And I think if people realize, hey, you know, we need to get some balance in the market for these people that are going to rent or buy these properties below, like I said, 200, 175,000 is where I kind of put the number at, you know, we, we, we really need to incentivize that. So I, I, that's what I work on outside of my day-to-day life as a mortgage advisor. I was telling you, I, I'm a co-host on the weekly Better Savannah discussions, you know, which I posted a couple of episodes on. And so we, we talk about these issues uh, more from the political policy standpoint, um, but I welcome people from the industry uh, to provide input because I think um, there's good expertise. Um, Megan Mowry comes to mind. She's very, very well versed uh, in a lot of these areas. Um, you know, people that I work with at Landmark 24 Homes have had a long storied career here. You know, I think that we need their perspective at the table, um, but ultimately we have to all agree that that price point and that supply and that price point is an important thing. And it may be more important to incentivize that price point than for the 300,000 plus price point to continue to just run wild. Right. right. You know, and that's the, it, it's just, it's just a sacrifice to open up other parts of the market uh, in hopes to, you know, balance things out a little bit. And so I am not trying to, you know, spoil the party, but it's not 2009 anymore. You know, we're not, in a demand crisis where we need to be careful that we're going to overturn builders. And it's a policy we can always walk away from. If, if the market changes and a crash does come, uh, I, I would be happy to, you know, walk away from anything like that uh, to get people, you know, a chance to compete. But now it's not that time. The problem is, though, you know, as well as I do, government moves slow. So like, all, these, wants all, to. This, all this time that you spent getting this going, right? Mm-hmm. Once you get going, I think that I fear, at least what, you know, what I'm thinking is, is let's say the, the script does flip. Yeah. We have another 2009. How long does it take before the city correct, corrects that? It's a good question. You know, um, uh, I, I think, you know, you've got to have uh, the ability to sun. I, I like things with sunsets anyway, right? So, like, you know, if it's an incentivization program, let's put this in place for five years. We all agree it's in place for five years. And let's see what happens, right? And if it doesn't work, well, hey, we tried it, you know, but we haven't tried this policy at all in the last 20 years. And we've got a housing crisis out of affordability at the bottom, which is producing excess crime, right? And so the crime holds everybody's values down. It's just, it's, a, it's a, Everybody's got a, a unique buy-in point to that issue because we all want to live in a safe place. And so if we can work on some of the housing affordability in the lower end, there are just countless studies that just show what that's going to do uh, ultimately for poverty and crime rates, which will be better for everybody that's living or investing here. Do you think that'll be like, so just to be clear what you want. So you want to do that citywide or is there a specific part of the county you want to do that in or? Yeah. I mean, again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at uh, it being a city policy, you know, inside the so city anywhere. of Savannah, okay. you know, but I, I, I think we're looking at, Using it to offset and incentivize other goals at the lower end of the of the of the price point. So when we're talking about, you know, projects that you're you're taking a shell of a house, right, and you're making it 
all of a sudden a livable, you know, rental property or a home that can be sold and those price points are affordable. All the stuff in town is not $350,000. Most of the projects you guys are working on, you know, you're buying less than 100 or putting 150 total in and maybe selling around 200 you know, 225 at the most, you know, that's what I see at least. I mean, you, you tell me if I'm wrong. I'm, see, some are getting I mean, yeah, definitely. But I think like, especially the Midtown area, like maybe not so much like Live Oak and stuff. You're probably yeah. right, like, right yeah. in there, but like a lot more of like, um, like Baldwin Park and even nice into uh, Starland District. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I think, I just think it's, it's something we should be working on as an industry with our, 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 our local groups, you know, and in hopes that there can be a balanced approach that will be a win-win, so to speak, for, for, for most of everybody, right? And the people who maybe do feel like they're sacrificing something understand that it's for the broader health of the market because I, if we don't get that supply back together in this price point that's affordable, uh, ultimately we're just producing more long-term problems to deal with with more property taxes. And so for those of you who are going to hold property, you know that's ultimately what this is about. It's about finding ways other than raising yours, eyes, everybody's property taxes in order to fund those things that are going to be needed uh, to move us to the next level. So I always love talking about, you know, advocacy on, on policy and the housing is a big, big function. But, you know, believe you me, there are a lot of other problems in town besides uh, the development and housing industry. So I, I certainly don't just single out uh, this one. It's just one that I happen to have a lot of experience uh, in. And, and so, you know, We've got a huge school that pays no property taxes. That's a huge issue in town <laughs> that I'm also working on, you know, as, as something to get a solution on because it's just uh, a, a big problem long term as they continue to grow. And then obviously um, in the midst of all these problems, like we should probably like redevelop Forsyth Park and change. The way it, it seems looks. like that's a huge thing all of a sudden. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I definitely wrote some comments opposing it. It doesn't seem like now's a great time to be doing that. Um I mean, surely we could be working on the walkability and the danger of the, you know, the traffic on Whitaker and Drayton right there first before we redesign the park. But it is interesting how these feel-good things always rise to the top and the nitty-gritty seems to fall by the wayside. So, you know, I encourage anybody who's interested to learn more about those dynamics. You know, you can you can follow a page called Better Savannah that, I said, like I said, we host a show weekly on Thursdays. That just delves into these topics. But if you're like Josh or you know, you're looking to invest in real estate or want to learn more information, obviously this is more of a show for you guys there. So I just want to talk a little bit about those policy issues and then you know take the rest of our time to just talk about the market or qualifying for your first mortgage or anything like that you want to talk about. How about the classic <laughs> first question? We jumped right into this podcast. We just came out swinging. But um, what's kind of been the trajectory from you, know, you turn 18? Kind of what was your trajectory from then to where you are now? Oh, great question. You know, I I, uh, I went to high school in Southwest Georgia in Americus, which is a Jimmy Carter country, uh, and went to Georgia Southern. Okay. So right down the road is kind of how I got to the area. I had some family that moved over here and, you know, kept coming to Savannah a lot during college and uh, just kind of made sense. I moved here kind of at the depths of coming out of 2010, 2011, you know, after that crash after college. And I was working at a manufacturing plant in Richmond Hill, um, you know, 4 a.m. to 5 p.m., just, you know, 12 bucks an hour. Coming out, I, you know, I just didn't, I was bored. I just needed a job, you know. Yeah. And then this company called me and um, 
I spent two years there. It's a company that's no longer in existence. It's my first mortgage company I worked for uh, and just kind of found that I had a knack for it and, you know, really liked it and have gotten a lot better at it over the years. Uh, so I spent the first two years in a call center company and then uh, worked for three different banks here, you know, locally until I got to where I'm at now. And, you know, I've just always kind of felt, you know, I see so many closing documents where I see the property taxes being binded up for the clients, you know, and most people are just, you know, they just, you know, they work, they, they raise their families and they don't have the time to really care about where those taxes are going. And so I've always kind of just been very interested in that because I see so much of it, I, you know, and you're seeing, you know, a million dollars a year of property taxes from your clients get put together. You start to wonder where's all that money going, you know? So that's yeah. how I got interested in all that stuff. But I, uh, I really love this area. I kind of just fell in love with it moving here. Uh, and, uh, you know, really like the industry, uh, because of what it, uh, allows me to, to do personally and professionally. So I enjoy working with clients in, in all stages, you know, first time home buyers all the way to final time home buyers. Let me ask you this. I think like a lot of people have like a grasp on what a mortgage mm -hmm. broker does, but what exactly is your, you know, what exactly do you do? What exactly is the structure? How how you work and, and what kind of day-to-day -day things are you doing every day? You know, taking an application for a mortgage for a customer is, you know, really the, the main role of the job of an originator. Uh, and so when I'm taking an application, it's, it's not as simple as what's your income, what's your credit, what's your assets. You know, that's like a very inhuman, you know, way. And, and generally what we're doing is we're having a conversation about what your goals are, where you're at in life, uh, and what options you may have. Uh, and so, you know, it just looks like uh, a tripod. That's what I always call tell people is that a mortgage is kind of like a three-legged stool. And if one of those legs is broken completely, it's going to fall over. Right. Right. Now, you can have one of those legs slightly damaged and it'll still stand on its own. Uh, and so those three legs of a mortgage approval, you know, are basically credit, you know, capacity. So, you know, credit history is one capacity that would include things like debt to income ratio you know and then assets you know how much are you putting down how much do you have in reserves after the transaction is over um, those are kind of the three main areas uh, those assets would include getting a gift or you know getting you know borrowing against your 401k you know what what, what type of asset is it uh, you know a small fourth leg might be just collateral you know obviously a, a condo is a different piece of collateral a mobile home is a different piece of collateral uh, you know, a single or three unit home is a different piece of collateral. So that's just a small offshoot. But generally, it's those three as a borrower. Uh, and so just knowing where you stand, Credit Karma is not a great place to, to check for your credit score. You know, um, you generally want to do one of the three bureaus apps, you know, uh, or freecreditreport.com, you know, for the, the government mandated annual report. Those are generally the more accurate sources. Uh, most people who maintain two credit cards, a car loan, student loans, you know, two or three or four accounts, trade lines, as we call them, you know, generally have a credit score that's acceptable to qualify. You know, uh, 600 is kind of the real barrier for entry for most traditional mortgages. Uh, 640 is probably really the number most people want, um, both for pricing on interest rates, but for availability of products because you've got a wide range. So obviously we're a big military town. VA loans are the the best loan on the market, in my opinion, obviously for qualifying. For home sellers, they don't tend to like them because there's a perceived issue with some appraisals. But 
I I don't know that that's as much of an issue for our market because of how many vets we have locally, you know, coming in and out, active duty, and, and of course, retired veterans as well. I think we're a good market for VA loans. Uh, for most people who aren't veterans, you know, they will generally go into one of the following three loans, you know, conventional, FHA, and USDA. You know, USDA is no longer in town for Savannah. There's a very, very tiny portion of the county uh, in West Chatham that qualifies, but all of Effingham and Bryan County for first-time home buyers, USDA is a rural development loan uh, that allows zero down payment and a uh, traditionally cheaper mortgage insurance, which is very strong. Um, in town here, where most people, you guys and your listeners will reach, is you're mostly going to be FHA and conventional loans. And FHA is Federal Housing Administration loan. Uh, it's directly endorsed by taxpayers. Everybody has a right to be able to use it for their primary home. Uh, everyone pays the same mortgage insurance rate. Uh, you know, so again, it's just the basic government directly backed mortgage to get people into the real estate market, you know? And so that's why if you have a 620 credit score, you can get into it at a decent interest rate because it's government subsidized with, you know, fair mortgage insurance. And then you own that for a year and your credit has now jumped up to 700 because now you've got a mortgage payment for 12 months history. You know, so that is generally going to be the product that a lot of people come into first because of how competitive things have been. A lot more people are wanting to qualify for conventional loans, which do have first time home buyer incentives and breaks um, for low down payment conventional mortgages. Generally, though, you're going to want a 660 to 680 credit score minimum to apply for one of those programs because the conventional loans are not directly government backed, the pricing is a lot more dynamic and sensitive to credit score. Whereas because FHA is government backed, uh, the pricing for both the interest rate and the mortgage insurance is much less sensitive uh, because there's that inherent backing from taxpayers. So, you know, it's, it's great to be able to um, access that program. There is nothing wrong with mortgage insurance on your first property. If you are buying to eventually hold it and, and rent it. There's nothing wrong with it if you're not going to pay it for all 30 years, if somebody else is going to pay it. So I just always advocate people to look into the FHA program first when they're a first-time home buyer program, uh, unless they have a stronger credit profile. Why would the banks incentivize first-time home buyers to use conventional? Isn't it safer for them to do FHA? You know, a lot of it has to do with some, you know, Community Reinvestment Act requirements, um, Fannie and Freddie, of course, are uh, 95% owned by taxpayers. Still. Still. <laughs> I don't think that's... Well, I uh, it, didn't know that. It's, 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 so again, like FHA is Federal Housing Administration. That's a government, you know, agency. Uh, Fannie and Freddie were put into what's called receivership in 2008 and 2009 uh, because of the last crash. There's some movement to, to move that back to where they traditionally were as, were as private companies, but that remains to be seen. Um because the government took them over, there's certain mandates to Fannie and Freddie to incentivize first-time home buyership, right? Um, and so we go back to the mortgage insurance issue, all right? So if you have a 725 credit score, uh, the mortgage insurance would be cheaper on conventional than it would be on FHA, right? So again, you know, it's risk-based pricing. The higher the credit score, both the interest rate's going to be better and the mortgage insurance premium which is how much you pay per month in mortgage insurance to protect the lender against you foreclosing, 
uh, it's it's more dynamic, right? So I think it's a better delivered product for the consumer ultimately, and that's what these products were incentivized for is to ultimately have some things that are better for consumers that are based more on risk than on, you know, everybody can access it. So again, like FHA is still a great product for your first purchase. You know, when you, it's hard to get a 720 credit score without ever having had a mortgage. You know, the people you know or that have 750s or 800s, you know, they've generally had a mortgage or three yeah. or four or five yeah. before they get to that level. And so again, FHA lets people get into the game, you know, establish a, a, an ownership history, establish a payment history, which will then get them to a credit profile that would allow them to, you know, move on to a 5% down conventional with way cheaper mortgage insurance, because now they've got that risk, um, you know, through their credit history, that's going to mitigate whatever risk they may have had a few years ago. So it, both of them are good products. And for first time home buyers, it just always depends on what's the price range. FHA has loan limits that are lower than conventional. So in your higher, you know, price range, 350, 380, 450, you're going to need to go conventional anyway because of the loan limit size usually. So these are all things that I'm thinking about. When you ask me, what's the day in a life or the job? You know, the job is to have the conversations with the clients that want to buy or refinance or build. Um, take the information through a conversation, be able to process it quickly because of your knowledge of the guidelines. So I, I would say at least five or six hours of my week is spent, you know, reviewing guidelines against applications always. When I'm working on something, hey, let me check this rule. Let me check that. And the more you do it over the years, it becomes kind of second nature, just like a capitalization rate calculation or, a, you know, how much is this going to cost? Who do I call to, to check on this price right. that's going to work for investors? That starts to become second nature for you over time. You just, you just do it and you're able to get to the point of whether or not this is a good deal very quickly. That's kind of over nine and a half years of doing it. Um, that's what you build is you have that conversation with the client. It can be 25 minutes, an hour, you know, either way you get enough information from them to be able to advise them. Well, here's what's going to be available to you by law. If a consumer wants to apply for credit, we're required to take that application. You know, ultimately by law, I have to process whatever they want to do. My job is just to simply inform them of what the options are, you know? And so I, I do definitely, provide as much detailed analysis. I've shared a couple of the screenshots in the videos that I've, I've put into some of the real estate investment groups that we're a part of uh, that just helped me you know, show people what the options are and what the total cost is. Because you know, even amongst the same product, FHA, if you're gonna be there for seven years, you know, maybe a buy down of half a point for a lower interest rate is worth it. Or if you know you're not going to refinance or you know you are going to refinance, maybe a higher interest rate with a lender credit is better. There's lots of different ways to structure a mortgage to make it beneficial for you as a consumer. Uh, and so it's just about getting somebody who's going to take the time to show you all of those different options to let you as a consumer make a very educated decision. So, you know, if you're a consumer that's looking to, you know, to purchase, you, you just want to get in touch with somebody who's going to have tools and time to walk you through, you know, what will be the largest transaction so far in your life generally. So you're kind of like the go-between between like the bank and the consumer. Definitely. So, you know, I'm not a, a broker. Yeah, I, I definitely I don't broker, 
that many loans outside of my own bank. I deliver most of them you know, to my bank. There are certain products and things that we do broker out to a few other companies. Um, you know, but I, I, I'm a direct facing, you know, retail lender. Uh, so I, I do represent, you know, only one company. Um, but I work with so many different avenues from local builders, you know, local developers, people who are flipping homes to, you know, just, you know, people who are buying and refinancing from the last nine and a half years. Now, the longer you do it, the more kind of your own book just comes back to you over and over and, um, you know, certainly real estate agents are the same way. You know, when you're in your first two or three years, you're, you're grinding and you're building that, that client base. Uh, and the more you do it, the longer you do it, eventually the phone just kind of keeps ringing, right. you know? And so I generally tell people the job is to answer the phone and return missed calls. You know, that's really what the job is, is to make sure you're available and call people back. Uh, so that way, you know, things run smoothly because there's nothing worse than being late on a closing or being delayed uh, when it could have been avoided. And so that's, it's just making sure the trains run on time uh, is the other half of the job outside of taking the applications is uh, just making sure appraisals are getting done quickly. And, you know, you know, closing docs are out to uh, the local attorneys in a timely manner, you know, and, uh, and so I, I definitely have, you know, preferences there, you know, based on my experience of working with many in town, because it's not the attorney we work, you know, it's the, it's the team behind them. Right. You know, as the bank and lender, we, we work with whoever's behind them. Uh, and so, you know, just like on a real estate team, if there's a, you know, a, a licensed buyer's agent or a, a licensed transaction coordinator, generally we work with that person on a more day-to-day -day basis. So I always like to get to know them. And, you know, I judge kind of the experience working with each of those people based on who their team is and how their team works. It's generally how I like. There's a lot of mortgage brokers that are independent also, Correct. So it's coming back more, you know, after 2009, it, it, it chopped off to like only 10 or 12% of the originators yeah. uh, over the last five years. It's grown dramatically. Uh, and I like to tell real estate agents that you should always have kind of three types of lenders available. You should have a, an independent mortgage broker, uh, a bank guy and a non-bank guy, you know, and, and, and that, that gives you kind of access to all of the markets and all of the products that you would need, right? So independent mortgage brokers can work with, you know, 30, 40 lenders at once, you know, and just send your deal ever. Just like when you go buy a car, you can get shop finance, 10 different finance companies, pick the best deal, right? Um, you know, generally the turn times, unless you're really experienced and have a really great team, can be a little higher because you're submitting it to a company that you don't work for. Right. Whereas I know the underwriting department in my company. I've been here for almost five years and can pick up the phone and call somebody or somebody's supervisor and get, get something moving a little bit quicker. Um, a lot of it, too, is just about the long term relationship for my own personal preference to, to selling mortgages uh, is that I liked working at companies that kept the paper on a servicing rights basis after the fact. So that way it's kind of like a buy here, pay here experience. Whereas when you're brokering them out, you know, you know, company X may sell it to company Y who sells it to company Z all in the first six months. And there's a, a genuine issue in the consumer. If you ask consumers, you go to J.D. Power and Associates, the, the multiple selling of their mortgage after the fact is, is definitely, you know, in the top 10 of complaints from mortgage consumers. And so it's just something I picked kind of as an issue. I would not be one of them, but... Um, there are certain, you know, access to, you know, fix and flip or, you know, 
what I would call mid money, not quite hard money, but like mid money products, uh, you know, for your, you know, audience that they have access to, you know, in, in cases, whereas I have a little bit more of a limited access to those kind of unique niche products at the same time for consumers, primary, second investment home buyers who are not major property investors yet, you know, meaning 10 or 12 transactions or, you know, if you have, if you own more than 10 finance properties, it becomes harder to get traditional financing is what I mean by that. Um, we do a lot of special things that other companies, you know, can't or won't do as well. So, you know, again, that's why I tell people you want to have connections to different types of mortgage professionals. Uh, and I'm by no means an authority in Savannah. I mean, I, I, you know, I did over 30 million in production last year, but there are 15 people who did more in Savannah, maybe even 20. Uh, and so again, all of us who have been here for a while, um, you know, are, are generally reliable. Uh, we just fit into different points of the market and different niches. We, we all can't be the best at any kind of product. Uh, and then of course we compete on price, you know, on a daily basis. And so whether it's, you know, Michael or Eric or, or any of these guys who've been here a lot longer than I have, um, you know, certainly you want somebody who's got either a bank or non-bank lender that just does mortgages uh, or a, mor a mortgage broker who's got access to different lenders and investors um, that maybe could help different types of clients that uh, a traditional mortgage, more traditional mortgage lender, you know, can't serve as well. How do traditional mortgage lenders compete against each other? Like, how much leeway do you have to compete against other banks? Like, is there a lot? Because I'm sure there's a lot of regulation around. What there's banks a ton can of regulation. Um, you know, there's a thing called disparate, you know, lending disparate treatment that we're always looking to avoid. Um, you know, I, again, I, I think it's about selling value and price and service. You know, I think uh, we have to compete on all three. And, um, I try to tell people, look, uh, you know, we're, we'll generally not be beat on interest rate, you know, um, but the fees for the rate, you know, will vary, you know. And so when you buy a car, you know, you may could get that car for $500 cheaper down the road. But does that dealership service your vehicle for free? Do they give you a loaner when there's a recall, right? If you're buying a home for a seven-year ownership period, you know, $500 difference in fees for keeping your mortgage at the same bank for seven years and always having a direct connection to the person who wrote it in case there's an issue with your, your escrow account or something like that. I think there's a value there um, that is going to be represented somewhere in the cost to deliver that loan for you as a consumer. So if I'm, you know, the same, same, exact same interest rate and our fees are four or 500 bucks more, that's generally not going to be surprising to me, you know, because I think our, the, the value of the long-term relationship just cost us a little bit more, you know? And so I think you're competing not just on price, uh, but on service and delivery, uh, both short-term and long-term. So the long-term is the long-term servicing relationship, but the short-term is how do you deliver an approval and a clear to close in a timely manner because of how competitive this market is to buy and sell property. So I just want to talk briefly about the difference between being pre-qualified, pre-approved, and what I would call fully approved or getting what's called an underwriting commitment letter. Okay. Okay. So, you know, a pre-qualification is you call me up. Hey, Josh, Chuck, I want to buy this house. My credit score is this. This is how much income I make for my job. I've got 20 grand to put down. Well, you know, again, I've been doing this long enough. You know, I do the calculation in my head. It seems to work out. Write a letter. 
once I verify, the letter says pre-qualified upon verification of all this stuff. You know, if all this stuff he told me checks out, you're good to go. All right. A pre-approval is I personally verify, you know, your pay stubs, your W-2s, your asset statements. And I say, I verified this stuff. You know, we should be good if all this stays the same. You know, an underwriting commitment letter is where we actually underwrite a, a borrower without a property. And which is that rare? It, it, it used to be. But because of how competitive things are now, imagine we run underwriting a week before you buy the property you're trying to buy and something comes up on the fraud guard certification or, you know, it, it lets us go do a full, you know, pre-surgery checkup before actually getting the property, you know, like, like, like a whole preparing thing. It lets us do the underwriting portion up front, which cuts down the turn time, right? So somebody who has never been through underwriting you know, it, it's tough to close in under 30 days if you've never been underwritten. But if you've been underwritten the week before you buy a property, go under contract, you know, you can close in 21 days usually because we just need an appraisal and title and insurance because we've already addressed any of the issues that you may have as a borrower. These could be variations in payment uh, on your pay stubs. Your pay stubs vary. Something's wrong. We need to find out what that is. Let's get this, this, and this so we can find out what your actual qualifying income is. It could be a large deposit on your asset statements that we have to source because we're required to, right? Um, it could be, uh, you know, a gift letter from a family member that we have to verify those assets. We can go ahead and take care of that stuff before you even find the property that you're in on. So for real estate agents that will listen to this episode, I always encourage them, the, the, the quicker you can get them to a lender, the better. I was joking about that Jeremy Irons line. You know, there's three ways to make it in this business. You could, you could, you could cheat. You could be smarter. Or just be there first. You know, and and we don't like to cheat, and we all think we're pretty smart, but it's just a heck of a lot easier to be there first. And if you get your your client to a lender before they shop for a property, and you get them fully approved with an underwriting commitment letter, you get that pre pre approval letter plus an underwriting commitment letter. You show them three days or four days back to back. You send that into an offer to the seller, to that listing agent, it should let them know that your client's much more serious. It also backs up. When you submit an offer and you tell them, hey, I can close in 25 days if you want me to. I know that you want this property sold. Here's my highest and best offer. Here's my underwriting commitment letter and my pre-approval letter for my loan officer. I've already done all the stuff except for find the property. And so that's something that over the last 12 months has been a critical difference maker for clients of mine. Clients of mine who go through the full approval process have a better chance of getting a property under contract, have a better chance of closing on that property in under 30 days, which again gives them not only the chance to be the one who gets the deal, but maybe even the one who gets the deal at a better price point or a better ultimate deal. You know, uh, Maybe they offer a grand less than the next closest one, but because the listing agent says, look, they're fully approved, they're closing in 25 days. This other offer that's $1,000 net more, they're asking for 40 days, and all I see is a pre-qualification letter. This other deal looks a little bit better. you know. Even though it's a grand less in net deal to the seller, it might be a slightly strong enough you know, offer that's structured well uh, with a good realtor and lender advocating for that deal that would you know, maybe push it over the finish line. So two, three, four years ago, this was not a thing, you know, not, not a major trend. Um, but in the last... 12 to 24 months especially, um, 
it is something that I have found is both beneficial for my team, uh, for us to be more productive and more efficient, but ultimately it's better for the consumers and better for real, real estate professionals, whether you're a selling agent selling property to a buyer or you're a listing agent looking out for the best concerns of your client uh, that's selling a property, it's, it's a huge advantage to the market. Do you think there's anything else you guys could do, you know, banks that could keep you competitive on speed? Like how, how much waste is there in that 25 days? Is there room for improvement? Like what, you know what I mean? There's always room for improvement. One thing that's changed in the last year through COVID has been what are called PIWs, which stand for property inspection waivers. This is AKA in appraisal waiver. So if you're putting a large down payment down, on a property, um, I would say 20%, 25%, you know, you're moving from across the country, you're relocating here, you're downsizing. Um, we will, when we run that application through what's called automated underwriting systems through Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, um, if you're putting a large down payment down, you've got a good credit profile and there's a good amount of data from the local market that support the price you're buying, uh, you will be given the option to waive the appraisal, you know, um, that's been a huge godsend for our second home buyers, our you know, large down payment first, you know, primary occupancy buyers who are moving into town. Um, that can cut a turn time even further from 25 to 18 or 19 days. Um, title work still takes a week to two. I mean, you know, it's, it's still taking a week to two weeks for title work, but the appraisal turn times are getting harder. You know, what used to be five or six years ago, three to five days on a conventional or FHA and, you know, a week to 10 on VA are you know, 14 days, you know, standard for any type of appraisal, probably more like 16 days to 18 days for a VA appraisal. So, you know, those are turn times that, you know, people are concerned about. And again, when, when they've already signed their certification authorization, have been pre-underwritten already before getting a property under contract, uh, it makes it all the easier for them to tell the seller that, hey, we can close because all I need to do is order the appraisal as soon as we have this contract. And when they've already been through underwriting, I mean, this is you know, just new disclosures, sign them, let's get the appraisal paid for and let's order it. Uh, you know, that's generally happened within 24 hours of a contract being signed. So you can allay those fears of the turn times in terms of moving forward, you know, more, more e-signing, more digital stuff. I would say 95% of my clients create the online account with Flagstar and e-sign all of their documents. That itself cuts down a lot of time. Um, I don't think banks are quite ready for fully e-closings. Uh, that's still probably five to seven years out. You know, we, we are, we're certainly experimenting in that area. Uh, but What's even, hampering progress there? What is? You know, it's 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 the sig- it's the hard coded signatures of a of a mortgage note. You know, that is a legal document that is used in court. We're a non judicial foreclosure state in Georgia, but in most other states, you have to sue the person that borrowed the money to foreclose on them. Uh, and there's just a lot of concerns about, I think, the, the, the legal ramifications of doing, of shifting to all e-closings, you know. I mean, certainly, you know, I think our local closing attorneys have adapted to COVID. We've done a lot more video notary, where the notary shows up in person to sign, but the lawyer's on a video call, you know, so that way that lawyer can do 
seven or eight of those with four or five different notaries in one day, you know, and that's more efficient. It's beginning more, um, you know, the only thing I think that we can do is just to digitalize as much of the paperwork process as possible. We've come out with some technologies in the last five years. One is called day one certainty for lenders. And, and so many of the employers locally and nationally participate with, you know, ADP processing company. Uh, Equifax has one called TWN, uh, similar competitor. And so we're able to just pull those income reports on day one. And when the report is fully verified, you know, that's, that satisfies pay stubs and W-2s automatically, right? So that's something, the more companies that could get signed up with those types of services, the better, you know, uh, the ability for people to give us full asset statements probably, and the mortgage people listening to this will laugh. I mean, getting the full eight pages of a full bank statement, even though the last two pages are intentionally left blank, right? We still have to get those two intentionally left blank pages because if we don't, well, what if they drained all of their money out of this account and paid six and seven, even though we know that they didn't? It's just a requirement, right? You know, I think eventually in the next five or six years, when you do an online application for a mortgage, it'll be like how Facebook can log you into new apps. You'll like log into your bank account and give all of your bank statements like immediately electronically because that's probably one of the hardest things is getting people to remit the full statements because most people don't look at their full statements anymore. They go through their transaction history. They go, you know, they balance it that way. I never understood why there isn't like an <coughs> online app, like online um, <clears throat> software, I guess, for like application for that, right? So like, let's say you go to buy a car, mm-hmm. right? They run your credit like 10 times. Yeah. Why? Like, there's not a solution for that. It seems like there'd be like an online profile, like a, Sign in with your Google, but it'd be like signing with something else for all financial things, like even when you're going to get a mortgage or anything like that. Well, you know, again, I mean, the, the car stuff is because they're shopping you to different. No, right. You know, yeah, companies. I understand why. Yeah, yeah. But I would I don't know why it's stuck that way. I, I have a feeling that lobbyists for Equifax, Experian and TransUnion have something to do with it. You know, I, <laughs> I think those companies are incentivized to keep things as they are. Um, but, you know, these companies, um, you know, in their mind are providing a service for banks and lenders to make reasonable credit decisions. Uh, and obviously the cost of that is the data they collect and sell. Um, if you apply for a mortgage today, right now, and get your credit pulled, within the next 24 hours, you're, you're almost guaranteed to get three to four calls from companies who've purchased that data. Um, it's you know, it's, it's insane, it's, it's unfair. Um, I went to Quicken Loans once. Mm-hmm. It was like the biggest mistake I ever made. Oh, we, we don't, you know. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I don't want to cast not, aspersions. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, not, not, I'm not here to cast not personally, on, on specific it's, Yeah, it's not. Companies. I'm sorry. I should be careful. I it's say. it's like, okay. It's know. not specifically Quicken Loans. It's just like a joke about the mortgage, big mortgage companies like that, period, I guess. You go on their website. You put in your information. You better be ready to expect 50 calls a week for the next few weeks. I, you know, I, I like the Goldilocks thing is I try to be with a company that's just right you know like yeah. the bigger uh, yeah. the bigger online based companies have a worse reputation people like to work with somebody who has a local presence here you know so i've been here 10 years most of the people in the industry know who i am and they know that if i put a letter out there for an offer i'm going to do everything that's in my power to close that deal in a timely manner uh last year was a little tough when covid hit a lot of clients got laid off at once you know, oh, yeah, it's not fun. Like, yeah. Not not much you can do about that when that happens. Not my favorite phone call to have to make. 
uh, in the job. And, and there are certain parts of the job that aren't fun, you know, whether it's talking to somebody about a deal that's blowing up, you know, or just laying down some bad news to, you know, a client who has their hopes up, you know, for something. It's a, it's a small but necessary, you know, tougher part of the job that, um, you know, the, the, the tougher job, tougher parts of the job make it when you deliver something great for somebody, all the better. You know, so you, you can't have the sunshine without a little bit of rain. And uh, that's definitely been uh, a good part of, of learning that over the years. So I've I've really enjoyed I, 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 I haven't kept up with my lifetime numbers, but I know we got to be hitting, you know, close to maybe 2000 loans done in 10 years. Um, it's probably around 17 or 1800. And uh, I would tell you the majority of that is in the last three or four years. So you like drive around Savannah. You're like, oh yeah, I funded that house. Oh yeah, it, I funded it, that yeah. house. Well, that's what a real a real estate agent goes. Oh, I sold that house in '95, in '99, in, in 2004. Um, and it, and I have had a couple where I'm I'm the second fine. I'm doing the second loan for this different person on the same property. That's fun. Um, the hard the hardest part is when it's like two clients that are pre-approved bidding on the same property. You know, that's probably one of the most huge dilemmas. And, you know, I just have to give them the best advice without, you know, giving away somebody else's positioning that's bidding on the same one. I've had that happen several times in the last year. And, um, you know, it just gets a little bit more, you know, tough to keep things, you know, both competitive for both client without breaching any ethical dilemmas. Um, There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of competition out there. And, you know, I'm really appreciative of the real estate agents who are giving feedback back to the other agents and the lenders. Hey, I know things are really tough out there. Here's where your offer stacked up. Here's the offer that we took, you know, and, and that I, I, you know, it's, it's sad. It's disappointing of course, but it's at least, you know, you're getting a reasonable feedback that says, okay, I tried, I came in with a competitive offer uh, and I just lost out because somebody had a little bit more resources than I did, you know, hopefully it keeps people a little bit more motivated. I can't tell you how many people I've pre-approved in the last six months, especially who are kind of just like they try five or six times. They're just done. It's like, I'll just go rent again for a year. You know, that's, that's a tough sentiment to beat back when people are getting outbid by $25,000, you know, on these, um, it's insane highest and best so again you know to the first part of our conversation i applaud and want to help out you know anyone who is bringing more inventory uh to the market you know especially in town and especially at you know reasonable price points because we've just we've just got to get more supply to to that thing and i i i I, continue to support the facebook real estate groups that you know are bringing more people into the game here uh because whether it's me that can help you out with financing. I may just be able to point you in the right direction, right? You know, if I'm not the person who can help you, but Queensboro Bank has this product at this terms that I know several of your, you know, your, your colleagues have gone through. Uh, and then maybe you decide to keep one of them out of the 10 you do as a rental, you know, and you come back and refinance that with me. You know, I mean, that's kind of part of it is just, you never know when sales will come back to you just by trying to do the right thing and being a resource to people in, you know, in the real estate community. So I just try to provide that value. And, you know, you'll see me pop into the pages and do a quick video every now and again and provide comments uh, on the various posts because I, I definitely just want to be an active 
uh, member in the community. So I really appreciate the invite. Yeah, man, of course. I want, one more thing. I want, I mean, what, what's the last thing you got? Well, I got want to ask you about uh, the Homes for Heroes because it kind of goes around with like, mm-hmm. comes back to giving back, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so I saw it on your Facebook. I don't know much about it, but what, what, what's, what's... It's, it's, a pro, it's, a, it's a program I participated in for three years. Uh, I haven't done it lately. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a program where professionals in the mortgage and real estate and sometimes the insurance space, you know, come together and agree to give back a certain amount of our commissions or revenue from the sale uh, back to that that hero, right? So these are veterans, first responders, uh, teachers, um, you know, have all, all traditionally been in that group. And so um, it was a really good program. I was at another lender when I started it, and then I was a part of a team at Flagstar when we were doing it, and then that team kind of went away. And so I started my own kind of thing within Flagstar after that, and I just never really re-upped it to focus on some other things but it's a, it's a great product there are again i know a couple of lenders who, who are doing that right now with the realtors who are participating uh, that's a really good product for certain clients you know the georgia dream uh loan um can be a good product for certain people my company doesn't offer it right now uh, but I, again i know several that do uh, and this is where especially if you are a teacher a nurse you know, you can get $7,500 in a you know, 0% silent second mortgage, you know, to buy your first property uh, to live in. You know, uh, the city, you know, at one point was offering 25000 You know, again, there are income limits and, you know, certain area restrictions, especially at the city program. Uh, but there are resources available out there. Uh, and again, even if I can't do it myself, I know where to find those at and I know where to connect people to them. Uh, because it's a, it, there are really good programs out there uh, that can help people at least get motivated and educated uh, about the products and programs that are designed to get people into the game. So the Homes for Heroes is just a really good p- program for our military and uh, first responder veterans uh, in and around the area, uh, especially when they're moving from out of town. You know, it's a really good program for people that are transferring to the area, retiring to the area. Uh, that uh, helps people connect with professionals that are willing to give a little bit back. How do they do that? So, like, if there's, like, a veteran listening right now, like, how do they go about – and are, what are the limitations on that? So, can they use it as an investment property? Do they have to live there? Uh, I think generally it's for it's for people that are buying primary homes. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like a sense, you know, yeah. moving in and out of town uh, thing. Um, but usually the, the mortgage lender participant would, would agree to – you know, a $500 lender credit for the appraisal or whatever. And then, you know, the real estate agent is agreeing to, you know, $500 towards closing costs going towards that, that, you know, so it's like a thousand dollar value uh, just going towards you because you're using this service and, you know, you get matched up with one or two people that are participating in the program. Uh, and so th- there, there are a couple other things like this that are, again, they're, they're more designed for that nationwide audience of moving in and out of town. Right. So like, it's like Homes for Heroes affiliates are everywhere across the whole country. So like when that person who did the one in San Antonio, Texas, they call their realtor who did the last one, say, hey, oh yeah, we're transferring to Savannah, Georgia, right? And so then they go through the Homes for Heroes affiliates program. And they say, oh yeah, so-and-so, you know, Chuck uh, at this company and so-and-so real estate agent, uh, they're the local Homes for Heroes affiliates there. So it's, it's more of like a network you know, as well as an incentive to, you know, the, the veterans. Um, it just keeps them in a, a network of professionals that are willing to give a little bit back 
to do some business with them uh, as a um, you know as a professional in the industry. So I I always like working with um, you know when I was at another company that was a little bit different than mine. It was a really good program uh, because we were able to offer that incentive. My company Flagstar right now. Uh, already doesn't charge any fees on BA loans for veterans. So we already have a lot of built-in incentives already. So I've been able to just rely on that instead of doing it as a, as a networking program uh, recently. I mean, honestly, the, 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 the marketing things kind of changed dramatically with COVID, right? Where yeah. we used to, you know, 10 years ago, there were mentors of mine that are long retired in this industry you know, who were still saying, you know, get a box of donuts and go buy every real estate broker's office. <laughs> you know, that's, that is not the world we live in anymore. You know, the world we live in is a highly digital one. It's a highly social media narrative one. Uh, and it is um, more time, you know, the, the, the time return on value is better spent developing, you know, those leads and those sources um, than doing those traditional network things, especially when we were all shut down only video and zoom only uh we're just getting out of that you know i'm just kind of getting used to being out back being a little bit more prospecting normally you know whereas i have spent the majority of the last year on zoom and on phone calls um you know selling clients um trying to buy uh and then obviously last year was uh, the first year in a while it's majority refinance business you know yeah Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. Talking about your mentors, um, mm-hmm. if you could go back day one, you or day one mortgage broker, uh, what advice would you give? I mean, you're a mentor now, right? You've been here for ten years, so yeah. You know, <laughs> I would, um, I would say study guidelines harder earlier. You know, like I mean, I think, I think just knowing, it's it's like square peg round hole, or like a, it's like a little maze, right? You start out here, you get this piece of information, you move them over here, you get this piece of information. The quicker you're able to to have those things in the back of your head, kind of stuck there, and and you can just cross reference the current client there. That takes a while, you know, and it takes. I was, you know, I was 22 at the time when I started in this business. <laughs> I probably, you know, was a little young, and you know, probably not as uh, committed to the industry as I am now. Uh, and so I think that that would have been a good piece of advice. Um, the real biggest piece of advice I can say is to just always tell people what you do, you know, um, the three feet rule is what you mean. Like everybody that's within your three feet circle, tell what you do. Well, not, not just that, but you know, you know, before COVID after COVID, obviously, you know, you know, you're at a grocery store, you're in line at a grocery store at Lowe's, you know, you just strike up a conversation, just hand them a card say, Hey man, you know, by the way, this is what I do, especially when you're a younger professional uh, or you're newer, you're in your first three to five years, you just got to keep handing those cards. You got to keep talking to people, keep introducing yourself. Um, you know, generally when people add me on social media, I will just send a message. Hey, appreciate you adding me. You know, this is what I do for a living professionally. If you have any questions, because a lot of times at this point in my career, when people add me on social media, it's generally for one of two things. It's to, complain about something with the local politics that I'm involved with, or it's just to, Hey, I need some help. So-and-so told me you, you helped them buy a house. Can you help me? Right? Because even though we're in a highly digital world, the word of mouth thing, it's just gone from being at someone's house to going, Oh yeah, I just closed or just refinanced with this guy. He was great to now it's they're in their own social media message. You know, they just, they're on a group chat 
with five friends they're lifelong with. And in the group chat, somebody's mentioning that they're closing next week on a house. And somebody says, oh, I want to do that too. And they just get that referral personally. Uh, it's it's the, the word of mouth advertising is still a predominant thing. It's just changed. Right. It's just, it's not like at Sunday dinner or, you know, it's, it's, it's all mobile and, and person to person digitally that goes, yeah, I just had this great experience. And so what I try to blend is both the digital stuff with how to process the mortgage and try to make it easy, but also that personal human touch that gets people to remember, um, you know, that it was a good experience because every time somebody gets a mortgage statement from my company, my name and numbers on it. So I try to make sure people have a good experience because they're going to get reminded. Right. You know, every every time that auto payment hits, <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Oh, Hopefully Chuck. it was. Yeah, I know. Exactly. <laughs> and if it was a good experience, you know, I, somebody, I at least once a week or so, you know, it, by email, Facebook, phone call, text message, smoke signal, what have you. Uh, I would say that's probably like a fifth of the business that we do on my team is just people calling in and messaging in from referrals of past clients at this point. And that's not something you can get in your first two, three years. Right. It's very hard to get there quickly. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I always try to tell people to, you know, learn from somebody. I worked with and for other producers in this market before I got comfortable kind of working on my own, 100%, so to speak, you know. So my first three or five, five years uh, at the company that's it's called FFG is no longer in existence anymore, and then I was at Wells Fargo for several years. You know, I had those people who had been in the industry much longer than me that were paying me a small, very small salary and very small bonus to learn. And once I got to a point where, you know, I felt that I could be successful you know, started going out and branching out to different companies that I thought I could make a little bit of a mark with, uh, both locally and just regionally, because, um, you know, having grown up in Michigan and here in Americas and traveled a lot around the States, I didn't want to just be licensed in one state to do business because, you know, if I do a loan for somebody here and then they pick up and move, I'd love to be able to do a loan for them there too. Right, you know? So I, I always like, you know, being able to, you know, do business in other markets, you know, as a protection, you know, for my own productivity. Because something here, you know, huge happens here locally. Maybe it doesn't affect the Charleston market, you know, or vice versa. Right. So just having the ability to do business in multiple markets was, you know, something I, I probably shifted towards about five years ago, you know, as a, as a priority after working for a company who was, you know, only licensed individually in certain states. I've, I've gone through that experience and it's just much more cumbersome to have to maintain individual licensing than it is to do uh, a federal, a, you know, FDIC-backed bank who, you know, you, you just are registered with the feds and you don't have to get those individual licenses to operate. And so I've just found that to be a little bit better for me, you know, personally, because nobody likes going to the DMV, which is the equivalent of, you know, state licensing boards every, nobody likes going through that stuff every year. So, you know, we do our mandated federal reserve, you know, continuing education and that's, you know, 37 hours or whatever it is every year. And so that's, you know, about, about, about the end of every third month, you'll, you'll see me shut down everything and just do all my little modules and, and not have to, uh, not have to worry, uh, that uh, I get them done late. So, um, you know, shout out to them for, for that stuff. But I, I, I definitely enjoy being able to be a resource to, you know, people, you know, like I said, at all stages from the first time 
to the last time because most people will buy three to five homes in their their life, you know, whether that's to live in, to rent out, to vacation in. Uh, and having done this, it's it's a it's a completely unique and wild conversation, no matter who they are, where they're at, you know. And there's there's one of the reasons it's so enjoyable is because there's no two borrowers and mortgages transactions that are the same, you know. They have, they may do similar products or similar down payments, but nobody makes the same amount of money. Nobody makes the you know, everybody's got a unique situation, you right. know, just like a fingerprint. And so each mortgage transaction is kind of the three legs are always changing. Yeah, yeah, you know the style of the seat, the yeah. style of it is changed, the, the 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 size of it, you know. And if you look at any given month on my team, you know we'll have five sub hundred thousand dollar transactions, and you know five big transactions, you know, and and they all go through the same pipeline, they all get worked with with the same aggressiveness you know, to, to get them cleared to close. And, uh, you know, ultimately I, I generally don't even look at the volume numbers anymore. I just like, I know like our goal is to do 25 units a month, you know, like that's our number. And so, you know, when we hit it on a month, the volume's usually good. When we fall short, the volume is usually smaller. It just ends up falling that way. And, and generally the numbers work themselves out, uh, to be productive over, over the, over the long haul. And so, I'm hopefully going to grow some more this year. I was talking to you a little bit about that off, off the show. And, and, you know, I, I welcome anybody who's interested, you know, with mortgage experience or without mortgage experience that just wants to talk uh, about what it's like to work in this industry. Cause I've had several of those conversations in the last few months with uh, maybe even some listeners of, of your show here. So I, 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 you know, it's a little less saturated than the real estate selling market is, um, I think I read a statistic. There's like 4,000 licensed agents in the Tri-County area. And to get in perspective, there's just 500,000 people in the Tri-County area. So you're talking about almost 1% of the population is a real estate agent. And for the first time ever, there are more licensed real estate agents in America than there are homes listed. I saw that. That's insane. An insane statistic. Um, so, you know, I, I, you know, there are other things. If I was looking to start out in the industry... One thing I would look into is is being an a, a apprentice to an appraiser. Our, the average age of the appraisers is very high, probably approaching 60. Um, and they're in incredible demand. Um, Mr. Stanley, uh, who's an appraiser here, he's been doing it so long that his grandson drives him to the appointments now. You know, uh, I'm not going to give away his age, but he's been doing this a long time. You know, um, Mr. Johnny Gannam, I don't think he's doing reports himself anymore, you know, but he did it for 40 years, you know. And so there are other roles in the transactions of real estate besides realtor, mortgage banker, broker, and closing attorney. There are more roles besides just those three. Those are probably just the most three relevant and three visible. Right. You know, paraly- great paralegals for closing attorneys, hard to come by. Those are those are good things to get into. That's a good solid skill. Associates at title companies, title insurance. Companies. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's all kinds of secondary correct support. appraisers, yeah, insurance people, inspectors, home inspectors. You know, the, there are all sorts of you know just accessory and auxiliary roles that aren't in the primary three that can be highly productive. And then of course you've just got you know people who are subcontractors, but just like handymans, just like people who can fix something that's only going to cost $130, right? You don't want to call 
super licensed contractor or specialist that's going to charge you 500 you just want to somebody can can you fix a window in a french door real quick right i mean just anything that you can find a skill and a niche in uh i think is 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 great to apply it towards this industry because i can't tell you how many posts i see from real estate agents or mortgage professionals hey client ha- I, I who's got somebody that's available to fix this you know right um and then of course like i said the appraisal turn times was an issue we talked about earlier. You know, how can we get them to be better? We can get more people to get trained as an appraiser. You know, ultimately, just like the inventory crisis, it's a supply and demand issue, which, you know, we need more supply of professionals in those auxiliary roles, which would maybe, you know, help out the the industry just a little bit in terms of efficiency and uh, finding a new equilibrium there between the supply and demand. So always my economics brain kicks in trying to get to the balance there, but we need some more professionals uh, to learn. So if you're, you know, if you're young and enterprising um, it's not just property flipping because you could be an appraiser and do both, you know, I mean, you can go and flip property part-time become an appraiser full-time for your income. You're, you're, you know, you got in your last episode still works, you know, full-time, even though he's, yeah. you know, flipping property, you know, there's an ability to get involved in the industry as a professional uh, and an investor and do both. And so the more people we can get, you know, especially younger people, because we need the young generation, the new generations to get involved uh, because the professionals are starting to age out, you know, and we're not like the pilots or whatever, where you're mandated out at 65, but, you know, certainly most people do want to get and retire at a decent age. And the more that retire from these roles and the less that don't replace them, the harder it is to keep things going without those delays and without right. those issues. Um, so, you know, please consider, you know, you know, jumping into the industry in one of these uh, types of roles or just do what Josh does and, you know, learn about flipping and start doing, you know, how many are you at now? Two. Two. Well, but know? we did 25 wholesale deals. Right. Or 20, well, 23 wholesale deals, two flips. So, right. 25 so deals last year. You know, in those 25 wholesale deals, I mean, that's like, getting paid to sit at the library and learn, learn a specific industry, you know, you gained so much knowledge from those 25 deals that you were able to apply to your own too, you know? Plus it gives you the credibility, right? I mean, like it serves a bunch of purposes. I mean, besides making money, like. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I can remember my first deal at Wells Fargo when I was doing my first purchase transaction here. And I just, you know, I was just this kid who knew barely nothing, but I, I was just willing to listen and willing to learn whatever I needed to do to close the deal, you know, and it was an older gentleman who'd been here a long time and, you know, it was probably like a $140,000 townhouse. You know, it was probably, it was probably nothing back then in 2011 or 12. And, uh, and you know, I, I could only go off of, hey, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get this deal done the way you want it done. Even though I may not have the most experience to, to, to tell you how that's going to happen today, um, over time, that changed to I do have the experience and knowledge to tell you how this is going to get done, and we're going to get it done. And the only way to do and that though is to do it correct. Go through the which we actually had this. I had this conversation with Jerome a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if mm-hmm. you listened to the Jerome mm-hmm. episode, but like everything nowadays is like, how do you find a shortcut to get to the end result? When like oftentimes the, there is no like you just need to go through the punches, right? Like if you hadn't gone through all those experiences in the beginning of your career. Like, you wouldn't be as good as you are now. You know what I mean? Like, you got to go through those moments first, of, yeah, I, hey, yeah. like, I'm not good enough to do that. So that way, and, and 
Yeah, I mean in five years. Okay. The median income in this it. county is fifty nine thousand dollars a year, right? Is the that high? In, if you do well at the MSA level, the tri county, the metropolitan statistical area. Okay. Right. I mean, the first two years in this business, I did not make that income. You know, right. because again, you're taking those punches, and I do think that there's and in the pop contrary, culture. Yeah, to Instagram. Right. You don't become a millionaire in <laughs> one day. Like. It takes oh, time. Oh, man. I, I'm not big on my personal social media anymore. I have company-branded stuff. Yeah. And that's always automated, always running. But I I do think there's a problem with comparing yourself to what you see on a feed. Remember, they're putting their best foot forward. I mean, comparison is a thief of joy, so that's why you got to be careful with the social media thing. You know right. What I mean? Like. It's tough, though. You, you get wrapped up in it real easy. And you can, it's just like high school all over again. You know, it's like, you know, why are you comparing yourself to the junk? You don't know what they're even, they, they could be making half this up, right? Yeah. They, they show you something and then it's, it's, it's a rental or it's this or it's that. And, you know, the race is long, but in the end, it's only with yourself, yeah. right? You know, and so it's about your goals and it's about where you want to go. And ultimately, I, I think it's better to just, not give up on your own goals than to take someone else's and try to make them yours because you burn out from that, you know, along the way. And I've had to recenter myself twice in my career now to what it is and why I am doing what I'm doing. Uh, and I do think it's good for people to take breaks. You know, I've taken two breaks from my career, you know, both were two to four months long, you know, uh, I haven't been able to do that in a while because of COVID and stuff. Uh, but I'm hopeful at the end of this year I will be able to go to like South America or something for three weeks and just kind of unplug and take another break because it's been a long two years. This last year has been the busiest year of my career. I, I think there was out of 52 weeks in the year, there were two weeks out of the year that I worked less than 60 hours a week. You know, just And those were right around Christmas at the end of the year. You know, Just because of how insanely busy it was. Right. And got to be uh, while the sun shines too, right? Like, the old loan, well, like, the old loan officer's yeah. prayer is, you know, please God, one more refi boom. I promise <laughs> I won't screw it up this time, you know? Uh, and so, you know, when the, when it, when it happens and, and rates plummet and the phone never stops ringing, you know, you're, you're basically, you know, in, required to just make the most of it while the hay is shown, just like you said. And, you know, that is only just now starting to maybe even alleviate, even though rates have gone up. You know, maybe a quarter, three-eighths of a point from the bottom last year. Um, these are still the bottom 5% of all-time rates, right? So there's, the demand is still very much there. Um, it's more like all of the people who knew to refinance have already done so. And now the people who like are like, oh, I should do that, you know, are just now coming around to it. So there's yeah. still demand in that market. But because of the inventory crisis... You know, I'm finding more and more inquiries back into construction. And so that's something that was a specialty of mine before COVID hit. Uh, matter of fact, I think in my 2019 production, the majority of it was new construction, either custom or with a builder. Uh, and so, you know, that will only become more and more uh, in demand as the inventory crisis continues to unfold with the excess demands from the last two generations in the last decade. So, you know, that's something I really enjoy doing, whether you own a piece of land already or you want to purchase a piece of land in conjunction with building. Um, that's also something that uh, we do on my team. Again, from a 100,000 project to a 1.5 million, 2 million, you know, and anywhere in between, um, 
that's always a very, very unique and fun process. Now, that's a process that is not as time-constraining as the traditional market is. You know, most people who are buying a piece of land aren't required to close on it in 28 days. You know, right. the land's been sitting there. You know, they're probably under contract for three months, you know, or they already own the land, and they're just shopping builders and trying to make sure they decide how to build this house. Uh, and so that's a good amount of the market for me to, I think, in the next two years because clients of mine that bought houses four or five years ago have, of course, gained all-time high equity. Right. And Crushing it. They can't find something. They, they think about trying to go buy, sell and buy, and there's just they, they're, there's nowhere to afraid. go. There's nowhere to go. Yeah. And so what they're doing is they're either buying cash or you know small lot loan, and they're just sitting on a piece of land now and go, well, you know, I think we'll sit here in this house for another year, and then we'll start building, and then we'll sell. Then the lumber prices shoot up 300%. Correct. <laughs> and so this is the problem. That's is the, the longer you right? wait, the, the, the more other be. factors yeah. start to kick in. Um, and I think like, it's going to be a long time before lumber comes back down. That's not going to come down anytime soon. Unless, unless significant government intervention, which... Like you said, every time the government gets involved, right, and pumps all this money out, or there's unintended consequences down the road. That's all right. you're doing is kicking the can. That's right. So, like, uh, I'm not saying that I'm for them getting involved, but unless they get involved, I don't think that price is coming down for a while. But well, you know, we need to make a deal with Canada. You know, I mean, that's where the majority of the lumber for right, home yeah. building comes from. Which I've heard that because of their still strict COVID uh, rules, that that's hampering production big I, time. But it, also, you know. It's not just a supply problem, right? I mean, like you're like we're talking about right now, like it's the demand, it's the increased demand in housing, right? Decreased with the decreased supply in existing housing, there's an increased demand to build housing, and that's causing lumber prices mm-hmm. to go up. All the DIY from everybody being locked in their houses, that's making lumber go up. So, it's not just supply; it's a demand issue too, which I'm not sure how you curb that. Like, and and, and the long term stuff is is the you know the modern medicine. You know, I mean, my great uncle is approaching 100 and still lives independently. Which, not that long ago, that was unheard of. That was almost unheard of maybe 25 years ago. And now it's It's common. It's a bad time to own a nursing home after this last year, right? Now, I would not want to be owning nursing homes after COVID crisis hit. Yeah, 10% of your clients are. I mean, not literally. But But I'm just saying it's a tough thing to sell these days when you could just take a second mortgage out and build an in-law pad in your you know place you build a, a, a extension or a wing or a second you know little rental in the back a little you know efficiency yeah. apartment in the back of your home and have cheaper. your parents live with you yeah it's cheaper to pay that second mortgage for 60 g's than to pay the equivalent of that per year almost in nursing home fees especially um, in new york no. yeah i mean i mean i was <laughs> gonna bring up crazy. i was gonna bring up the formal thing but it's okay i just think again i think when you combine all of these factors together there is this huge lack of supply, this huge excess demand. I don't see that going away or e- coming to equilibrium for several more years, probably five or more. You know, um, Now, again, not a great time to own commercial real estate, right? You don't you know? think so? I think it's there was down a lot 20% of 20% yeah, in the last year. I mean, but year. it depends on your market, right? Correct. So like Savannah, I mean, the whole Southeast really didn't really take much of a hit. Maybe, I don't know about Atlanta. I don't really follow... Atlanta, but like I know a lot of guys out of Texas, no problems. I don't Houston. Houston. I, I think if you're in the downtown corridor, it's no problems. Yeah. I think if you own, you know, some of the south side starts to become a little bit more. In Savannah? 
on the commercial front, not on the residential front. You know, I mean, again, I, I, I just think the, the occupancy rates I've seen from some of the commercial people I know are a little bit less than they should be. There's only one difference in opinion, but there's only one place in Savannah, in Chatham County I would not, that I'm worried about if, I was, if I'm investing commercial. Where's that? Pooler. It's, it's highly it's inundated. Ridiculous. <laughs> well, and so here's the I thing. I mean, obviously you, they're not going to build it if they're not making money, right? But, like, that is a bubble. Well, just a, to connect back to the original topic of our conversation that we started with, do you know what the people out there want? Less building. You know? Yeah, oh, yeah. If you're, like, a resident of, like, old Pooler, like, those guys that have lived there forever, <laughs> yeah. they are not happy anymore. Like, they were no. happy in the beginning, I think, but it's changing. Well, you know, the mood is changing out there. You know, if you put impact fees on all that commercial development, it, it, it might slow it down a little bit. Which they need to do something. I mean, right. Pooler Parkway's out of control. You know, so again, Dude, at least on Pooler Parkway, like, because I live out on a, I live in South Side, South, it doesn't matter. Anyway, so we come in off 16. I was like, oh man, such a breeze when you come in from this side. No one knows, you know, it's like no one uses this side. Now look at all that development. It's yeah, terrible. I try to avoid, you know, 16 coming into downtown because of the amount of traffic. Yeah. I try to pop off to 516 usually and come into downtown that way. Uh, because it tends to be a little bit better. But that's a prime example of the growth outpacing the infrastructure too quickly, right? Uh, the amount of growth they've had commercially, there's not enough place for the cars to move and park. And, you know, it's just well, yeah. it, it, th- th- that parkway was designed 35 years ago for a number of commercial spaces that is now far exceeded now, right? right. And I heard it, too. I don't know the rumor. Do you know? Have you heard it, rumors at all about like the, like the sanitary infrastructure being like super bogged down from all this development? Yeah, you know, the there's a lot of controversy with the dump, and with Atlantic Way services. You know, which I know services a fair amount of that area. Yeah. Um, you know, again, I I think we've got to think about policies that help offset the costs of these things, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and if that means that it becomes slightly harder to build new development in West Chatham, I don't think that most of the residents are going to be against that, right. you know, when they deal with the traffic and congestion um, of an already hyper growth area like Pooler. Pooler for the last decade was the fastest growing municipality in the entire state, right? That's, that's saying something. No signs of stopping right? there. I mean, it's still um, blown up. Yeah, I don't think it's number one this last year, but it's still in the top ten. Yeah, it's still probably like three or four. And then you got to think right next door, Richmond Hill, not far. All it's that stuff they're doing. Too. Yeah, all that infrastructure Look at the project. The Belfast Keller. Yeah, uh, that's something I've been hearing about in Richmond. If you're in Richmond Hill, you know about there's a big deal there locally in the last five weeks. The Belfast Keller exit off of I-95, which will make commute times for thirty thousand residents. You know. 25%, 30% shorter. Yeah. You know, uh, you're talking about massive growth and stuff that's going to happen. Um, but, of course, that was a federal project that required 10 years of oversight and planning and approvals. And yeah. so I agree with you. The federal stuff and the state stuff is always going to move that slow. But here at the local level, it shouldn't be that way. I mean, you know, we, we, you know, I know my alder people. I know my commissioners. I know my state reps. Like, it doesn't – it shouldn't be – like as slow as the federal government is to build an off ramp off of I-95, which literally took over a decade there. So, you know, there are people I know who have been holding property in anticipation of something like that for that long, you know, and, 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 and if there's anything we can do 
uh, to avoid you know that long of a wait for some of these projects, I think we should look into doing that. So I, I feel for those West Side residents that deal with it. I personally could not live there uh, because of that issue. I have not even owned a car in over a year because I got in a massive car accident and I live downtown. You know, so like I Ubered out here, I'll Uber back. I think I will buy a vehicle again soon, but I was with my dog when the accident happened. It was very traumatic. I've got back problems now for the rest of my life, you know, and it's just like a, you, you, you go with what's comfortable and what's best for you, you know, yeah. for my clients, some of my clients, that's all they want to do is live in Pooler because they think it's awesome that all that stuff is right there. Oh, yeah. I you know, that. they yeah. want to be a five minute drive away from 30 restaurant options you know, I want to be a five minute walk away. Yeah, I get it. You know, I, 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 that's what you want, you know? And so I, I just, again, I, I, I never tell people like, Oh, you should, I'm not a real estate agent, right? Like, yeah. Oh, you should look into this area or this area. I kind of just go, Hey, you know, this is all a really great growing area countywide or next County over is good too. You know, it's next all three kinda, counties over. <laughs> exactly. Anything in the area. Yeah. And because I service nationwide, I mean, I always want to just make sure people are, comfortable with what they're doing because i always tell them they gotta sleep at in that home they buy you gotta sleep there right i'm gonna sleep fine regardless i want you to be educated so that you know you sleep pretty tight and sound uh and uh and have a good experience both during the process of buying but while you're living there and owning it too because it is you know we're selling 30-year mortgages or 15-year mortgages long commitment if you stay there the entire time and so you want to make sure that people have themselves a really fantastic experience so I think you're doing a great job here on the podcast, man. Thanks, man. I'm, I, I I listen to every episode. You know, I what? think. Thank you. I think uh, JB. I love JB's episode and um, uh, Sabria's episode. They're, these are, you know, I know these people. These are good professionals. You know, with a lot of experience here, and uh, it's not something that a lot of others have tried to do yet. And so you kind of came in at the perfect time to start this type of platform. <laughs> for this industry because nobody else has really done as good a job as you have so far. Thank you so much. You know, to be honest, I did it like, I don't want to say out of selfish motive, but I wanted to meet people. And I was like, this is a great excuse to like meet people. Like, I don't know why everybody doesn't do that. Like I was watching Gary Vee. He's like, you want to network? Just get out and start a podcast. And I was like, I found these like on Amazon. I'm like, okay, I can do this. No problem. Let's do it. Let's just see what happens. Absolutely. At the beginning, it's like you're reaching out to everybody trying to like schedule things. And at some point it just kind of starts to, there's a need for it, I think, in this market that I didn't even you know you don't even realize or I don't know. Well, you know, as you as you else. branch out, you know, uh, I'd be happy to help. You know, I, I hope you'll get some MPG more merchandise. Start selling get, some merch. Yeah, man, I'll, I'll definitely wear a hat. That okay. Says MPG on it. You know, once a month or whatever. I like. <laughs> I like I'm not wearing a hat today, but I like hats a lot. So. I would definitely wear that or like a, a pen or something, you know. Yeah. To definitely do stuff like that. I, you know, am always, you know, I my assistant wants me to start a podcast for mortgage stuff specifically. And because I do the local Savannah stuff already on another podcast, like trying to find the time and commitment. Yeah. And, and, and that's what people don't understand. It's really hard to be consistent with this. And oh, yeah. It's pretty. They think like, oh, you just buy some microphones and put a face together. Or oh, it takes it up my whole Zoom. Tuesday every week. Right, exactly. Yeah, no doubt about it. No, yeah. Exactly. So, like, I have, like, two different planning meetings with our podcast crew, and then we have a show every Thursday, and it's like, this is 
what ends up happening, you know? Yeah. So you're right over there. Yeah. <laughs> you got a crick in your yeah, leg. Yeah, I had a bad cramp. Don't, 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 don't cramp up over here. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I can't wait to see where you're at 20, 30 more episodes in. Because um, we're about to do episode 34 on my thing. And, like, I mean, like, just getting to where we're at was just like, this is the last 18 months. Like, every Thursday, basically, like every other week, putting something together uh, for kind of the local you know, political policy scene, you know, and, right. and getting people to get active and interested in it, just like you're doing on this platform. So I hope you'll give me some pointers on Anchor and stuff because I, I don't know anything about this stuff. <laughs> All I know is speak into the microphone, look at the camera, well, you know, like this is what you're doing. And I just know to build the content. Like I know like how to create content, but whether to, how to deliver it and clip it. And there's so many fantastic people in the online media platforms that are doing cutting edge things uh, sooner or later I get some time here I got to just sit down and you know go to skillshare.com and learn something about it so I can do more myself because I tend to rely on other people a little bit younger to, to, to show me or do things for me because I just haven't had the chance to to learn how it all connects but I love doing these uh, these different shows and you know, different platforms about different topics and, you know, certainly real estate and lending uh, is right up there with some the top things I like to talk about. So, yeah, man, it's a lot of fun. I was thinking too, like, uh, I've been thinking about getting like an audio engineer or something just because like you say, like it, to an extent it's plug and play, right? There's a, you can get to a base level just doing that. Right. But like, if you want to be good, there's like this huge chasm of like, do I spend however many hours, 100, to, you know, 100 hours learning about all this or, you know what I mean? Most, uh, and, and the thing is, is most professionals in our world, you know, especially re- the best the best real estate agents I know, all, all had a coach at one point or another. Right. You know, I had a coach for two years and the stretch of career I'm in now is a direct result of that. Right. You know, and so, you know, it's it's the technical skills and then just the soft skills that you need to develop to perfect you know kind of whatever it is you're focused on and it's hard to do both it's hard to like build content which i would consider like a soft skill like knowing how to interview somebody and and having a good topic of conversation um that's stuff you have to work on but then like the technical stuff of audio engineer and this app and and then you know all this and clip that that starts to become more of like a trade skill. Like yeah, it feels like, like, it's like yeah. this is not what I really do. Yeah, like the and you got to keep the one thing the one thing, right? So like I don't want to get too distracted, right? With all these, right? So I, 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 you know, clue me in on how that goes. Maybe we can, <laughs> maybe we can share the cost of an audio engineer. Okay, and, and yeah. get, keep our bottom line a little bit better because <laughs> I, I, I have worked with a couple people in the last four months, and I mean it's it's hard. And you were just telling me you want to add video into yeah, which your I'm gonna, stuff yeah. soon. And again, having done this for the last, especially the last six months straight full time on our own show is like the live aspect is really tough that we've, and we do it and we shoot it live, you know? And yeah, no way. You guys are, you guys are hardcore. I'm not Zoom, doing that. Yeah. I mean, it's Zoom <laughs> and OBS is another system we use. And it, I mean, again, it, it's, it's something that, I would not recommend going straight into live production um, based on my own experience over the last half year um, because it's hard to not get frustrated when something goes wrong and then you're about to go live. Yeah. And, you know, it's you just want to kind of focus in and do the content and then maybe 
edit and publish it. But either way requires somebody that knows a little bit more of the technical side than maybe you do. So, you know, let me know how that goes for you. And I, I'd be interested to see what the progress is. Cause you just told me you were going to change everything up. So I hope oh, yeah, if I come it's back coming. here in like a year, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll look like the Joe Rogan East studios, <laughs> at the, you know, some red or something at the table in the middle, you know, nice mic microphones and stuff. So for 2020 I, I, or four twenty. 2022 Chuck's there you go. Back. I, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. yeah. A year from now I'll, I'll come back and it'll be a, you know, it'll be a nice, you know, private space at the table and, you know, sponsored, sponsored whiskeys from uh, <laughs> ghost coast distillery and new realm distillery that just opened yesterday. Downtown. Oh, downtown. They had a soft opening okay. the other day. I think actually their real opening is supposed to be like Friday of this week or Thursday of this week, but just another really cool, distillery that's there in atlanta they're huge in atlanta a huge location in atlanta um so yeah i would love to see you know us get connected with other companies locally and you know i i always like to try and support you know people in savannah because like i said i, I do work for a company that's you know does business in all 50 states so i try to i try to support local companies and uh stuff like that here in town keep the money flowing here yeah i mean it's just about you know uh, and it's selfish too it's always self-centered because you know, somebody who's seen me buy their product a bunch of times, you know, they might want to do business with me one time too. So, I mean, ultimately it, it all comes back, but you know, it's, there's some altruistic reasons, you know, as well, but, uh, but it's just good for your business and to be somebody who, you know, is involved in, uh, the local happenings of town. So how do people get a hold of you? And what's the best way? The best way is to just, uh, you can look up Chuck Fagan Flagstar. Um, I'll give you the information. I'm sure you could put in the, uh, yeah, I'll put put in the description. Show yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, in terms of, you know, mortgage stuff, uh, you know, if you just Google Chuck Fagan Flagstar, that'll pop up, but, uh, it's Chuck.Fagan at Flagstar.com is the email address. My direct number, which has been ringing several times over the course of this conversation <laughs> is, uh, area code 912-429-0494. And again, for compliance reasons, I'm, I'm Chuck Fagan, NMLS 884-138. I work for Flagstar Bank. We're an equal housing lender, you know, so uh, we'd be happy to uh, to talk to you or, or somebody you care about about their mortgage situation. Um, but definitely uh, look us up, and I appreciate the invite, and I'm looking forward to who else you got coming up on the podcast next. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks, Take it Josh. Easy. See ya.